don't don't hate me for this. I've only just started reading for the first time, 1984. Oh wow! Oh, I thought you were going to say you just started reading the Communist Manifesto or something, but I'm oh, sure I made you read that at one point. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> we all know Comac's a big lefty. So. <laughs> <laughs> I have Pretty noticed that. Yeah. Welcome to another episode of This Catholic Life, conversations about life's ups and downs, big and small, how we deal with every situation imaginable, whatever life throws at us, but still manage to be sensible, practical, and joyful. Today's show is virtual worlds, in a world where technology allows us to see and experience things we could not in real life. What are we getting out of virtual reality and what are we missing in virtual reality? What are the implications morally and psychologically and all the other ways? I'm your host, Peter Holmes, and today I'm joined by Renee Cole-Ryan, Professor in Philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. Hello, Peter. Hello, Renee. And Cormac McCann, uh, another co-host, uh, the usual rabble-rouser, and uh, as we've just established, lefty. No, sorry, just joking. <laughs> Welcome, Cormac. <laughs> thanks, thanks, as always, If anything, Peter, you would me. be centre-left. You wouldn't be, you know, left-left, right, Cormac? Is that the way it goes? Oh, I'm, just, I'm just not going to... You know, you've got to fight. He's not going to dignify that with a response. <laughs> yes. We already established uh, in a couple of episodes ago that uh, left and right are pretty much meaningless these days anyway, so it's more of a fun drive than anything serious. Before we get started, just a reminder, if you like the show, you should subscribe on your podcast app, and that way you won't miss an episode. Also, if you haven't done so already, drop us a review on iTunes. It helps other people come to know that we're around. So let's get started. I'm going to do a little bit of talking at the, at the start because these two have surprise, admitted. Surprise, <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, they, you two have both admitted that virtual reality is not your forte. You're not really into the whole VR scene. and I like and the real world kind too of, much. Yeah, yeah. Virtual high five, Renee. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> <laughs> There's an irony <laughs> giving a virtual high five it was over total liking the real world thing. more than virtual reality. So more to the point, uh, there's an old saying from uh, people who play a lot of online games. They say, yeah, I've tried reality. The graphics are great, but the gameplay sucks. So the, What impoverished the, um, imaginations these people have. <laughs> What's interesting about virtual reality is that often when it, it very closely mirrors reality, people don't like it. It's too drab. It's too it's too boring. Whereas when you play um, the more successful online games, they tend to be really heavy on primary colors and glowy things, and you know there's a kind of a, a more real than real feel to it. Virtual reality, though, is more than just for computer games. I could go on and on, as no doubt people have heard me do about virtual reality. But it's not just about computer games. We'll come back to the morality of some computer games in a minute, but it's also used for training airline pilots, medical specialists, specialist forces, anti-terrorism, police forces, um, even driving tests in some places are done, some parts of driving tests are done through virtual reality. And you can actually get a sense of the skills and uh, you know quite dangerous situations can be replicated in virtual reality. One other factor is that in medical situations, they can help deal with phobias and even diagnose and treat some forms of schizophrenia by creating um, virtual worlds which respond to and help, you know, give gentle introduction to those circumstances. So virtual reality has a very strong uh, track record uh, already in its early inception for helping us out. The questions we have to ask are, uh, what are the issues involved in presenting yourself online or going into a 
not quite real place online. So I want to just put out there that this is big business. It's not just us have playing around with computers or something. It's huge business. So for example, a couple of issues ago, Cormac raised the movie Avatar as an example of this amazing other world we might sink into. I think that was me uh, actually, Peter. I w- you would, might you be right, Renee. You don't necessarily want to blame Cormac for bringing that one up. I'm, I'm quite, quite happy to take the blame for that one. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> well, I'm just using it as an example because Avatar took about four, oh, sorry, about 15 years from con- initial conception to release and it grossed about, or to nearly $3 billion. World of Warcraft is a game, which is a virtual reality game, not in the proper sense of virtual reality, but it's an online world. It took about four years to build, and it's it's been taking subscriptions since 2004, and currently it's at about between 18 and $20 billion worth of revenue. So we're talking about about 10 times the amount of money involved in the you know one of the top movies, as is in the... You know, top games sort of thing. So where there's money, there's going to be other issues. Another factor is that in some online worlds, things get really serious. So in a, a game called EVE Online, uh, there was a battle called the Battle of BR5RB. It was a 21-hour battle in which massive number of players were involved, but basically about 300,000 US dollars worth of virtual materials um, were destroyed in that battle. And that, that actually meant $300,000 of real money went down the tube in one online virtual battle. That's an obscene amount of <laughs> sort of investment. Another In another online game, which hadn't even been released yet, someone bought a meteorite in the game. Like it, they bought real estate and then they resold it off uh, and they bought it for something like $10,000 and resold it for more in a few days so they actually there's investments going on my question is what happens if one of these deals goes wrong you know what what's the morality involved in it? it's just pixels what if a real estate deal ended up someone get it got ripped off or something there's no there's no legal framework to deal with this sort of thing but also what about acts in virtual reality um, in one of the games, someone posed as a bank and ripped off a whole bunch of other players to the tune of 100,000 US dollars, just took money off them pretending to be a bank and then ran away with it. Um, and just so- to interject here, Peter, so, and we're talking, when you're talking about 10,000 US dollars, people aren't trading real life currency of their own savings or whatever, are they? This, this, this is yeah, virtual yeah, this, money. this is, this is, right? this is or- virtual money in, in these games has a real value. So there's a real value in real life. You can purchase, for example, a certain amount of currency in the game with a certain amount of real currency. And there's an exchange right. rate, right? So it's, it's not Bitcoin. It's a kind of a, basically in World of Warcraft, you're not supposed to buy it with real money, but people do on the black market. But something like EVE, you actually just, you literally purchase currency in the game and so you can price items in the game by how much it would cost you to buy that item and so games have things like your credit card details or whatever that you use whatever it is yes Yes. and and, and what are the kind of rates that we're looking at is it kind of one us dollar to 10 virtual us dollars like what 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 are we talking about here it changes it changes immensely so this is the reason i keep using us dollars as a as a amount because you you know in second life the game you talk about lindens in eve you talk about credits in, you know all of these things and those currencies fluctuate so in world of warcraft it used to be that say um one gold would cost you you know 10 us dollars or something like that 
but that's become much less now that the game's gone on. The currency's been devalued. But the point is, is that there's real money in it. There, there's people have actually spent money to get in there, or they've invested a huge amount of their personal time and effort to get that value within the game, which they could conceivably sell and get money back for outside of the game. I know people who actually, they're full-time creating things in Second Life, the game, and selling them within the game, and they can pay their rent that way. So right. their productivity is actually in a virtual world. What are the implications of playing these kind of games online and investing actual tangible assets? I mean, you, you're always investing, obviously, your time and whatever it costs to acquire the game initially, but uh, I want to basically throw out there is it the same are we talking about something that is of equal moral relevance and consequence as losing assets in a game or ripping someone off in a game versus doing that in the real world being a bad landlord or ripping somebody <laughs> off because i kind of well, think that's where we we should probably angle towards let's say i mean let's test that out a little bit and i'll ask renee's help here this is the kind of thing i'm getting towards in scenario a I convince Cormac that I own the Sydney Harbour Bridge and I sell it to him. And then I run away with the money. And then in scenario B, I convince Cormac that I own a meteorite or a plot of land in a virtual reality. And I and he pays me the money and I run away with the money. This and story doesn't go well for me. No, no. <laughs> you need to re-examine your life choices there, Cormac. <laughs> so I am asking Cormac, um, what's the moral difference between these two? It, it isn't the same deception involved and monetary gain involved with using illicit means? Well, my response said, to that, Peter, is to play the Dean of Philosophy card from Notre Dame. Boom, Renee, take it away. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd sort of like to go in a completely different direction altogether because there's a wonderful um, – and, and maybe then I could come back to what you're asking, Peter, but there's a there's a really good – I usually don't like these things, but thought experiments. Um, and the thought experiment goes like this. Suppose I've got two choices. My first choice is that I can train for the Olympics and I will put everything I've got into getting into the Olympics. And if I make it, great. And then if I win a medal, even better. But, you know, I'm going to give it everything that I've got. Well, why not just go into some kind of virtual reality where I will have all of the experience of winning at the Olympics, but not necessarily all of the experience of the pain and the hardship and the not knowing if I'm going to make it and all of the anxiety that goes along with that. Which one of these two would I choose? And the philosopher who put this experiment together made the claim that it's far better to go through the real world experience rather than the virtual reality experience because that tells you something about yourself genuinely in relationship to the real world in a way that virtual reality never can. Um, so, okay. it, and it's also it, a way of looking at um, benefits, and I, I think that ultimately it's a way of looking at pleasure or happiness. So, what does real happiness? Um, where does real happiness reside? And the and the thought is, or the thinking behind this is that life itself has ups and downs and you could never have that moment of absolute triumph 
of absolutely feeling that you had won at the Olympics and it was amazing if you hadn't gone through the real hardship of trying to get there in the first place. So there's no kind of, you know, influx of just some kind of pleasurable activity without, um, that is of the, that is, uh, that is uniquely the, the pleasure of winning that Olympic medal when you've worked so hard for it or, you know, is this great, uh, great Australian movie that's been out there called Ride Like a Girl with winning the Melbourne Cup when you watch the watch the jockey go through all of this with her family and trying to you know and when she finally wins the race you're like yeah you knew she was going to win all along but yes this is fantastic (laughs) my husband still doesn't understand why I watch it because um, you know what's going to happen at the end but that's all right (laughs) so so I, I think that virtual reality for me really raises issues like that so money changing hands I mean, people can defraud each other and enter into all sorts of questionable monetary arrangements in the real world and in the virtual world. Um, And to me, the morality of the situation doesn't really change based on where that's happening because people do stupid things with money. I've never had enough of a budget to do anything radically stupid, but people buy things that are unnecessary they buy things just to have the pleasure of feeling that they've bought them. So people have in the real world bought meteorites and, you know, yeah. weird things yep. like that as well. Um, so for me, the, the moral difference there isn't that it's not different. Okay. Can, can I come back to one of the points you raised there about your assumption in that analogy is that virtual reality would only simulate an achievement rather than actually be an achievement. So some yeah. some gamers and um, even online virtual reality people would say it is an achievement for example in real i'm not simulating fighting a dragon in the real world because there's no dragons but in in uh, a game you mo- <laughs> in, the, in the real world um sorry in the real world i don't have the same kind of fights but in in uh, an online game way back when i had time to play them the um Sometimes you'd spend months working on the skills involved and the equipment and and all of the necessary things involved to get to a certain level and to achieve a certain goal. And then when you got there, it actually was a feeling of achievement. You had to coordinate up to 40 people in teamwork and get them to coordinate perfectly online and and have almost like a military-like discipline. And that that um, achievement is a is an achievement which could be replicated in real life if you played a team sport or something like that but it's achievement in itself it's not replicating like it's not like putting on fifa you know on on your xbox or whatever it is on your playstation and just pressing the button and suddenly you are the world's best player and you have the perfect skills to hit that crossbar or whatever it is it's not like that it's actually you have to actually start from scratch and build up so they would suggest that these achievements require that level of blood sweat and tears However, the question I have still is if you have beaten the dragon in the virtual reality, no matter how much skill it took, no matter how much effort it took or how much money it took, is it the same morally as, for example, building something in the local park, you know, or, or you know, having an actual achievement? I think this is what Cormac was getting at. Is it useful? Does it pay the rent? You know, well, that's <laughs> does what, it do well, anything? It's not even that it pays the rent, Peter. I actually think I'd like to take just a fraction back before you ask that final question. And, you know, we can talk about what, are the, what is the moral relevance or value of something. There are multiple moral frameworks and, you know, utilitarianism or consequentialism being another one of them. And you say, well, you, we could ask, well, what's the utility of someone playing, you know, a, a game and coordinating with up to 40 people that takes several months? 
minutes, we'd probably say that, you know, we could talk about the opportunity cost of your time and effort and energy invested in, or, okay, we maybe you're coordinating a complex, you know, um, military operation that's going to take several months. You're trying to take, you know, Hacksaw Ridge or something like that. Um, yep. And, uh, and, and you can say, well, that's an achievement at the end of the day, but actually, I, I just kind of... I, I, I'm prepared to concede that it would be an achievement of coordinating people sitting at your desk behind a computer screen and all of the skills involved in that aspect of management. But I would say that it bears absolutely categorically in no way any relationship to actual um, the physical conquering of, of ground or or in any way going through the the, yeah, the real life motion of actually taking the ridge, going through the absolute terrifying scenario of bullets flying over your head, of having to dive into a trench to you know, to escape death, to you know, drag you know, your, your comrades. Well, comrades is sorry, is really the wrong word. Your compatriots. <laughs> your communist roots coming out again. That's right. Here he goes. I, I did say at the start, I'm reading 1984 at the moment, and uh, and that's why it's that, creeping that into of, your language. It's creeping into my language already. I'm you know. I'm, Guilty of thought crime, speak crime, all of it. Um, wow. Yeah, I just think that yeah, we can talk about the only way you can talk about I think an achievement in the virtual world is whatever skill set it gives you in the real world, if that makes sense. Mm. So the skills involved, you yeah, say like, you want to upskill your requirement, like your equipment or whatever. Well, that might mean that you know how to conduct an, an, a negotiation online to obtain weapons, but it's mm. in sure. no way going to be able to be translated. I think into you know, you're not going to, oh, you know, we'll say, you know, we get invaded by a foreign power. Then we're looking for volunteers to go and coordinate <laughs> military strategy. And Peter puts up his hand and says, well, actually, I've conducted complex military operations online. I've got extensive experience in this. You can actually hire me. <laughs> this has actually happened. They, they, the army recruited out of, like they had one particular combat game, which was very complex and very realistic. And the army actually took some of the best players in America and, and offered them, you know, entry into their programs because they basically they shown that they had um, the awareness and uh, targeting skills and all those sorts of things, and they basically had to just check if they were physically capable of it. So it's so not. Oh, no, 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 that's not, not just check if someone's physically capable. I mean, that's the linchpin, isn't it? It's like it's a just check if you're a person if you can get married. You know, it's like just well, it's just this little <laughs> small but detail. Is it, also, is it also like a small detail, and that could be that there is. Um, a, a way in which a gamer can distance themselves from what's actually happening. That's what would concern me more. You, if you yes. know you're in a game and you're used to doing things in a game, then I think in, in a military situation, they do want to, in some ways, desensitize people to what's going on. So, so if, the, if the person who's going from the gaming world into an actual military situation can be made to think, oh, well, it's just like when I was in the game world, then you're going to have a far greater chance of getting them to do what you want them to do and what needs to be done. And that's what I would find a bit more scary. Particularly, Renee, if you're employing people to fly drones and things like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. So it, it, it's almost like a computer game in some respects. Having right. said that, there has been some research. There's been a lot of attempts to prove that computer games and virtual reality uh, cause violence, but they've not proven that. What they have demonstrated is that it desensitizes people to certain scenarios, which is exactly what you were saying, Renee. Yeah. So that, for example, one experiment had uh, a bunch of uh, just early teens kids in their early teens and one group the control group played racing car games or whatever it's just something a bit harmless 
Um, <laughs> Except if you put them in a car and put them on the road, I would suggest. But okay, that's another that's another experiment I should talk about. But basically, yeah, um, picking flowers again. <laughs> I like the whole this fighting partic- dragons things. I find <laughs> dragons everywhere. Yeah. Show me so how the to other fight side them. of it, though, the other side of it was a violent first person shooter. So they were literally shooting people and seeing blood and guts and everything uh, in the first person. Now, when they they said they told the kids they were going to do a questionnaire afterwards. But what happened was that the interviewer came into the room and simulated an accident. So she she fell over and all her gear spilled all over the floor and and she hurt herself, right? So then what the, the test was is how the kids then reacted to the accident. And so what, what the interesting result was is that eight out of 10 of the kids who hadn't played the violent game, so they played the racing car games, eight out of 10 of the kids jumped up, showed empathy, reacted, tried to help. Whereas eight out of ten of the kids who had played the violent games didn't react; they just were indifferent. Like they simply just didn't react to the to the person, the other person's um, small disaster. So it was pretty much an indication that desensitization is a real thing. I mean, this is after four hours of playing, and some of these kids are playing for you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of this stuff. First-person shooters are kind of the first step into virtual reality. I, when I went to a gaming convention a couple of years ago, um, gosh, it's now four or five years ago, put on a VR headset, one of the very first realistic games, and watched a human person, simulation of a human person walk past, and it was extremely difficult to spot whether it was you were in a real situation or not. I thought someone had gotten into the space that I was doing my virtual reality in. Now, my first thought was this could actually lead to a whole range of moral problems in the treatment of human beings. And then then I walked around the corner to the first game they had on offer, and it was basically a game where you took chainsaws to zombies, so in virtual reality. So I thought, yep, well, we're there already. The whole idea of just virtual reality being used to portray a situation which is abhorrent and and encourages kind of horrible mistreatment of human bodies and yet claiming that it's not not a moral problem because it's in virtual reality. Yeah, I think that it might be interesting to have a look at um, this question in relationship to a question that's often asked about art. So art and also play. Cormac was pointing out earlier that looking looking at gaming only through a kind of utilitarian or consequentialist lens where you're just saying, well, where where am I getting bang for my buck here is not really... Um, the only approach that could be used. So you could be asking something different, which would be, am I doing an action? Is this a human action, which may not be for some kind of gain in that utilitarian sense, but it could be something that's good in itself. So it's actually something that's nurturing to me as a human person. So I would say that philosophical activity doesn't really make that much of a difference in terms of monetary gain or, you know, the arts are really under attack right now um, because of financial constraints and budgetary constraints. And people might say, yeah, but I mean, it's not like they they bring that much of an income or resources into the world or anything like that. But I think we all know that when those are lacking from the world, something is really lacking. So I, I would say the same of art. I'd say the same of sport even, and I'm not the most sporty people around, a person around by any means, but I, just to see the delight on a neighbor's face the other day when um, from a distance he said, it looks like we'll get the NRL back, 
in um, in <laughs> May. <laughs> Good on you, mate. I'm I'm very glad. You know, I've been I've been thinking, oh well, you know, so NRL isn't playing, big deal. But actually, it is a big deal, and something is missing if it's not there. So my question would be, if gaming were not in society, would we be missing something or not? I think we would, but that's that's a bias as someone who's got a lot of um, not just pleasure but community out of gaming. So a lot of when I got married, I wasn't able to go and I used to play a lot of team sports. So I played with, with lots of other guys of uh, roughly my age and and some mixed teams as well. So really strong community. But when I got married, it wasn't possible to be out doing all the training and doing all the extra stuff. And I, I simply found that community um, that I could online game with friends regularly say on the weekends without necessarily having to leave the house and and be with you know be away from my wife and the kids etc and it meant that in a desperate situation i could just drop everything and help out in the family uh so if, if someone you know i know you say desperate it had to be desperate huh well, admittedly, that ha- the situation had to be very carefully controlled because, of course, um, my focus was very much distracted, and and we had to negotiate how many hours this was. You know, just like sports, you you negotiate how many hours. And one of the dangers of computers is that they keep sucking your hours away. And people who've become addicted to online gaming, and yes, it is possible, um, tend to do so because they don't keep control of their own actions. Can I throw just another sort of moral angle? It's not. It's a bit of a twist on what we've already talked about. Lots of people talk about, oh, there's no problem with people playing violent computer games. Now, stylized violence is something that's been part of games for a long time. In in fact, many sports are actually just a kind of formalized warfare, <laughs> kind of you know, put within rules so that we can test strength against each other. Uh, even chess is a kind of a virtual war in a in a kind of a uh, kingdom setting. But the whole concept of someone's you know cutting uh, human bodies up and and you know shooting them all day doesn't seem to bother us however this is a question me. I put, this is a question i put to my classes <laughs> when they say there's no problem with virtual games there's no problem with it i say all right there are i'm aware of at least three games that have been refused classification and entry into australia because they involved um sexually predatory behavior of minors and torture scenes now in those cases uh, our um, our regulatory bodies have rightly said this is not appropriate for any human being but my question would be if you knew your next door neighbor was playing a, a virtual reality game that involved predatory sexual behavior of children you wouldn't accept the argument that oh it's just a virtual reality it's not going to affect reality like most of us would have the reaction of oh my goodness, they think this is entertainment? I'm going to move away or keep my kids well away from them kind of thing, wouldn't we? Whereas if it's a violent uh, game, we seem to not have the same kind of concerns. I do have the same kind of concerns, so I suppose I sort of rule myself out of um, out of that argument. I think that any any kind of violent activity, whether it be only of the mind or in a virtual world, it affects us. So everything that we do as humans affects us and affects who we're becoming. Um, so I, I, I think that any kind of immoral behaviour, particularly of the, you know, fifth and sixth commandment kinds, um, is quite problematic. Right. It's an interesting take. Um, I, I, uh, 
kind of also want to circle back to your question, Renee, about, you know, would if, you know, oh, philosophers or the arts weren't here, would we feel that something is lacking? And I'd say, you know, yeah, I, I, I think something would be. But would the same, could the same be said for if there was no virtual gaming? And Peter, you emphatically said that, no, no, there's something would be lacking from your experience. Well, I, coming from the other side, would say that, no, I don't think we'd be missing a thing. In fact, I'd say there'd be positive benefits for people not being trapped <laughs> indoors and actually being in the world. I mean, you could actually go and help play with some, you know, play with your kids at the park or different things like that. I mean... Slay some dragons. Slay some dragons. That's right. Well, and <laughs> and that dragon could be your... It could That dragon could be your messy bed. Like, you could go and make that. My point here, Cormac, is that my children in our current lockdown, my children are playing... A, a, a game similar to Minecraft, it's not Minecraft, but similar to Minecraft with some friends who are not cu- currently able to come and visit us. And so they're, they're engaged in a, a mutual activity online in a virtual world, which is a play that involves coordination and fun and silliness and all kinds of other things. And that's possible. And I would agree that virtual reality isn't necessary for humanity. Clearly, we've survived quite a long time without it. So we will manage to go without it. to have that on the record. (laughs) (laughs) If it it happens to disappear, we'll all cope. I have a great many friends that I would never have met or never have even looked at or had the time for had I met them in real life in a pub, some of them are too scary. Some of them are simply not the sort of person who would look at me twice. Some of them are the sort of person I wouldn't mix with ideologically or just wouldn't cross paths with. But I've met these people in virtual um, realities and we've become quite good friends over time. Some of them are people who literally can't leave the house for either mental health reasons or physical health reasons or their circumstances, they're isolated, that kind of thing. In other words, it provides an avenue through which other human elements, human activities, the kind of philosophical discussion, friendship, genuine concern, mutual activity can can be conducted. That's maybe a good point to, to segue into then a slightly different area of virtual reality, which is around friendship and relationships and forming connections with other people. You know, bar, I think those are like maybe those extreme cases where people may not be able to make physical contact with other people for various reasons um can you actually form genuine friendships and i'll target this question at renee actually can you form genuine human relationships without actually physically being in their presence and i'm thinking for example of stories of you know teenagers who meet online through chat forums and things like that get into relationships that last the span sometimes of years but have never actually been in the physical presence of one another and you can yet go through the 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 anxiety the anguish the torment of you know are they you know being faithful to me or you know or, or, or I'm not sure they're being completely honest how do I do the navigate all the complexities of our relationship can the virtual reality forum of engaging with people through relationships that are romantic or not actually be a fair substitute for being physically in their presence oh I think it captures really important aspects of some of the activities that go along with good relationships and good friendships, but there's certainly something missing. I think as Catholics, we know that too. I mean, we're pretty nitty gritty when it comes down to it as Catholics. Um, I think we're all missing the, I know we are, we're missing the community of actually being together just with our fellow parishioners. I don't think there are some substitutes for physical presence. And I can think of some examples of this. 
Sometimes my husband and I, at the end of the day, are so completely exhausted, all we want to do is sit down on the couch and have a cup of tea together or a glass of wine or something like that. I can do that when there are two screens up. I know lots of people have been trying to do that, but it's just not the same. There is no substitute really for walking out of mass on a Sunday, turning around and seeing the certain look in someone's face that, you know, like there's an online presence that we can we can put up there. We all know that from social media and this kind of thing, an online persona that is always going to be partial, um, better than nothing, but it's never going to be the fullness of actually being with a person. Um, I think that there's just something missing from um, from that whole experience of of physically being there. I would respond to that by saying, it's true that while via the medium of virtual reality, I can carry on and keep relationships closer than I could otherwise. So for example, my siblings who live interstate, I can maintain a relationship with them at a much higher level than if I were merely writing or vaguely contacting them via email or something like that every now and then, because the personal contact is more through a video video interaction than it is through just a, although some people might argue letters are very important. It was certainly a very important part of my courtship with my wife. So I'd have to think about that a bit more. Oh, I agree. I think you're onto something there. I'd agree that later on, we, my wife and I just finished watching um, uh, North and South. I don't know if it's like, it's like an Austin type. I don't know who's watched it, but anyway, but there's yes. lots of letter writing and stuff. It's very romantic. And, and there is something, I guess, again, going back to that tangible physicality of having the person's writing style, the ink marks you know, embedded into the, 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 the physical page and uh, yes. kind of conveying something about their person and their time and their activity that can give you know something to you, which, you know, absolutely of you know austin style you know novels didn't really have virtual reality and probably would have made it far less interesting but you know that yeah I, oh and you I wouldn't have that, that horse coming in, in the middle of the night with the letter yeah. that you handed <laughs> over and they brought it you know instead of the ding and the annoying yeah, exactly. text message at 3 a.m um, um yeah i guess what i was what i was leading up to is that i don't think it's just i think the problem comes when we think of it as a substitute for human contact that's the danger because the taste, smell, feel, physical presence of somebody, the fact that when you're with them constantly in the scenario Renee was describing, when you come home and you're collapsing and you're at your lowest or at least at the most exhausted, that's when you really sense the person, you really understand them. And even if, the, in fact, of some of the strongest relationships are the ones where you can just be silent together and, and feel the genuine comfort in that. When all you've got is visual and audio, everything about that relationship has to be channeled through that and it becomes almost um and this is what's a concern with the the teenage relationships they can't just hang they have to do something perform if you like in the visual audio um is a kind of a, they channeling everything into that and um it's in certain sense the reflective or just being element of relationship gets lost in that yeah i think that's right it's, i guess it's just about getting back to appreciating our physical nature Get out, smell, smell the flowers, have a look at the garden, uh, do some weeding, you know, physically get involved. And, and for those of, that you happen to be fortunate enough to be shut up with, uh, really appreciate the closeness of that situation. That's it for this week's podcast. If today's discussion got you thinking or arguing with your podcast device, let us know. You can subscribe at the website, thiscatholiclife.com.au and all the usual uh, social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, etc. Don't forget to write us a review. And it's time for shout-outs. Cormac. Well, 
in the vein of our conversation following on from it, I would like to pay a special mention to all of those who would normally like to be outside, especially those playing team sports like rugby in particular. So my particular shout out today is going to the, uh, the Redfield Old Boys Rugby Club. Uh, you know, it's been uh, a bit rough to not have uh, the game that we love um, to, to play. So, you know, especially feeling it for, for all of you that are unable to get out there. And I'd like to take the other side and say a big shout out to those people who are out there on the front line making it possible for us to be safely at home because as much as we might find it difficult I think that being out there seeing everything that's going on in the current um, COVID-19 crisis I'm thinking in particular of our health workers at the moment but also those dealing in um, not only physical health but also mental health um, I just um, want to send a big shout out to them because what they're doing is magnificent in many ways. Amen. Uh, my shout out goes to those people who um, are introverts and are busy telling me it's a good time to be an introvert. <laughs> but thank you for that. But perhaps you could like put on an online course or something and teach us some of your skills. <laughs> That'd be really it's very handy. true. Like that great old meme, you know, like, look out for your extrovert friends. We are not okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's all for now. And thank you for listening to This Catholic Life.